Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast for Book 10, Chapter 1. Again, we see Tolstoy paint a picture of historicable inevitability. Do you think he would take a similar view to more modern wars? Do you think he would view World War I and II through the same lens? What about something like the Vietnam War? In the Medium article today, Brian E. Denton talks about the importance of reading both novels and history and how this book is almost a cross-section of these two things. Do you agree? Why did you decide to read this novel in the first place? That's a good question to ask as we pass the halfway point. Pythagorean Bean says, Striving for realisation of their own personal ambitions to work cooperatively towards an outcome of immense significance, this juxtaposition struck, stuck with me as Tolstoy uses it to help derive, drive his idea of historical inevitability. None of them know where their actions are leading history, just that they are trying to complete their own agenda. I liked this chapter more so than the last one, and I'm looking forward to more of Tolstoy's discussion. Kara Kikas says, Having just lived through interesting times, my big takeaway is how messy the facts of an event are, but how quick people are to simplify it after the fact. To understand it, you need a clear story, and as you retell it, that version gets solidified. The incongruous details fall away. Tolstoy Tolstoy is not writing from a first-hand account, but many decades later. I imagine that his knowledge of things would be simplified narratives that survive. So, from that perspective, it is easier to argue for inevitability. But I wonder, would anyone say that of an event they lived through where they had agency? I guess when you tell history, it does seem like the actors in that historical setting were really just working towards the thing that happened. And so it's easy to attribute that kind of predestination when you're looking retroactively. Uh, um, yeah, but you're right about how life... Uh, or big events, I should say, not life, Uh, interesting times, when they're retold, they are simplified. And what's that saying? It's like history is told by the victors or something like that. you got to think that, especially back in, uh, you know, older times, when just the vehicle to tell stories was limited... Well, who who was around with the resources to write down what happened? The people who won, in a lot of cases. The people who were victorious or successful, at least. Uh, anywho, I'm ready to read you the next chapter. Chapter 2 goes like this. The day after his son had left, Prince Nicholas sent for Princess Mary to come to his study. Well, are you satisfied now? said he. You've made me quarrel with my son. Satisfied, are you? That's all you wanted. Satisfied? It hurts me. It hurts. I'm old and weak and this is what you wanted. Tell, well then, gloat over it, gloat over it. After that, Princess Mary did not see her father for a whole week. He was ill and did not leave his study. Princess Mary noticed to her surprise that during his illness, the old prince not only excluded her from his room, but did not admit Mademoiselle Boreen either. Ticon alone attended to him. 
At the end of the week, the prince reappeared and resumed his former way of life, devoting himself with special activity to building operations and the arrangement of the gardens and completely breaking off his relations with Mademoiselle Borin. His looks and cold tone to his daughter seemed to say, There, you see, you plotted against me, you lied to Prince Andre about my relations with that French woman and made me quarrel with him, but you see, I need neither her nor you. Princess Mary spent half of every day with little Nicholas, watching his lessons, teaching him Russian and music herself, and talking to de Salles. The rest of the day she spent over her books, with her old nurse, or with God's folk who sometimes came by the back door to see her. Of the war, Princess Mary thought, as women do think about wars, she feared for her brother who was in it, was horrified and amazed by the strange cruelty that impels men to kill one another, but she did not understand the significance of this war, which seemed to her like all previous wars. She did not realize the significance of this war, though de Salas, with whom she constantly conversed, was passionately interested in its progress, and tried to explain his own conception of it to her. And though the god's folk who came to see her reported in their own way the rumors current among the people of an invasion by Antichrist, and though Julie, now Princess Drubetskaya, who had resumed correspondence with her, wrote patriotic letters from Moscow. I write you in Russian, my good friend, wrote Julie in her Frenchified Russian, because I have a, de a detestation for all the French, <clears throat> and the same for their language, which I cannot support to hear spoken. We in Moscow are elated by enthusiasm for our adored emperor. My poor husband is enduring pains and hunger in Jewish taverns, but the news which I have inspired, which sorry, which I have, the news which I have inspires me yet more. You heard probably of the heroic exploit of Rovsky, embracing his two sons and saying, "I will perish with them, but will not be shaken." And truly, though the enemy was twice stronger than we, we were unshakable. We pass the time as we can, but in war as in war. The princesses Aileen and Sophie sit whole days with me, and we unhappy widows of live men make beautiful conversations over our Sharpie. Only you, my friend, are missing, and so on. The chief reason Princess Mary did not realize the full significance of this war was that the old prince never spoke of it, did not recognize it, and laughed at de Salas when he mentioned it at dinner. The prince's tone was so calm and confident that Princess Mary unhesitatingly believed him. All that July the old prince was exceedingly active and even animated. He planned another garden and began a new building for the domestic serfs. The only thing that made Princess Mary anxious about him was that he slept very little and instead of sleeping in his study as usual, changed his sleeping place every day. One day he would order his camp bed to be set up in the glass gallery. Another day he remained on the couch or on the lounge chair in the drawing room and dozed there without undressing, while instead of Mademoiselle Boreen, a surf boy read to him. Then again he would spend a night in the dining room. On August 1st, a second letter was received from Prince André. In his first letter, which came soon after he had left home, Prince André had dutifully asked his father's forgiveness for what he had allowed himself to say, and begged to be restored to his favour. To this letter the old prince had replied affectionately, and from that time had kept the Frenchwoman at a distance, Prince Andrei's second letter, written near Vibetsk, Viteb, sorry, Vitebsk, after the French had occupied that town, gave a brief account of the whole campaign, enclosed 
for them a plan he had drawn and forecast as to the further progress of the war. In this letter, Prince Andre pointed out to his father the dangers of staying at Bald Hills, so near the theatre of war and on the army's direct line of march, and advised him to move to Moscow. At dinner that day, on Desales, mentioning that the French were said to have already entered Vitebsk, the old prince remembered his son's letter. There was a letter from Prince Andre today, he said to Mary. Haven't you read it? No, father, she replied in a frightened voice. She could not have read the letter as she did not even know it had arrived. He writes about this war, said the prince, with the ironic smile that had become habitual to him in speaking of the present war. That must be very interesting, said de Salas. Prince Andre is in a position to know. Oh, very interested. Interesting, said Mademoiselle Borin. Go and get it for me, said the old prince to Mademoiselle Borin. You know, under the paperweight on the little table. Mademoiselle Borin jumped up eagerly. No, don't, he exclaimed with a frown. You go, Michael Ivanovich. Michael Ivanovich rose and went to the study, but as soon as he had left the room, the old prince, looking uneasily around, threw down his napkin and went himself. They can't do anything. Always make some muddle, he muttered. While he was away, Princess Mary de Sales, Mademoiselle Borin, and even little Nicholas exchanged looks in silence. The old prince returned with quick steps, accompanied by Michael Ivanovich, bringing the letter and a plan. These he put down beside him, not letting anyone read them at dinner. On moving to the drawing room, he had handed the letter to Princess Mary and spreading out before him the plan of the new building and fixing his eyes upon it, told her to read the letter aloud. When she had done so, Princess Mary looked inquiringly at her father. He was examining the plan, evidently engrossed in his own ideas. What do you think of it, Prince? de Sales ventured to ask. I, I said the prince, as if unpleasantly awakened, and not taking his eyes from the plan of the building. Very possibly the theatre of war will move so near to us that... Ha ha ha, the theatre of war, said the prince. I have said, and still say, that the theatre of war is Poland, and the enemy will never get beyond the Neiman. De Sales looked in amazement at the prince, who was talking of the Neiman, when the enemy was already at the Dnieper. But Princess Mary, forgetting the geographical position of the Neiman, thought that what her father was saying was correct. When the snow melts, they'll sink in the Polish swamps, only they could fail to see it, the prince continued, evidently thinking of the campaign of 1807, which seemed to him so recent. Bennigsen should have advanced into Prussia sooner, then things would have taken a different turn. But Prince de Salas began timidly. The letter mentions Vitebsk. Ah, the letter, yes replied the prince peevishly. Yes, yes. His face suddenly took on a morose expression. He paused. Yes, he writes that the French were beaten at... At what river is it? Dosalis dropped his eyes. The prince says nothing about that, he remarked gently. Doesn't he? But I didn't invent it myself. No one spoke for a long time. Yes, yes, while Michael Ivanovich, he suddenly went on, raising his head and pointing to the plan of the building... Tell me how you mean to alter it. Michael Ivanovich went up to the plan, and the prince, after speaking to him about the building, looked angrily at Princess Mary and de Sales and went to his own room. Princess Mary saw de Sales embraced, sorry, embarrassed, an astonished look fixed on her father, noticed his silence, and was struck by the fact that her father had forgotten his son's letter on the drawing room table. But she was not only afraid to speak of it, 
and asked Asales the reason of his confusion and silence, but was afraid even to think about it. In the evening, Michael Ivanovich, sent by the prince, came to Princess Mary for Prince Andre's letter, which had been forgotten in the drawing room. She gave it to him, and unpleasant as it was for her to do so, ventured to ask him what her father was doing. Always busy, replied Michael Ivanovich, with a respectfully ironic smile which paused, sorry, caused Princess Mary to turn pale. He's worrying very much about the new building. He has been reading a little, but now, Michael Ivanovich went on, lowering his voice, now he's at his desk, busy with his will, I expect. One of the prince's favourite occupations of late had been the preparation of some papers he meant to leave at his death, and which he called his will. And Alpatiche is being sent to Smolensk, asked Princess Mary. Oh yes, he has been waiting to start for some time. Alright, there you go. That's a chapter for you. Old man Bolkonsky. Not getting any mm, less grumpy. (laughs) Uh, Have a say on the subreddit. Thank you for listening and I'll see you tomorrow.